1980, a new government policy was designed in China with the express aim to restrict the exploding population in the then-developing country, but also to help fuel economic growth. These restrictions became known as the one-child policy. This policy has had huge knock-on effects for China, as the patriarchal society favoured sons over daughters and sex-selective abortions became common. The one-child policy is no more, but the impact is still felt. In 2020, the census showed that China has more than 723 million men and 688 million women, creating a huge demographic imbalance. And this has significant consequences for women in bordering countries. But how? And what has this got to do with organized crime? Well, this massive gender imbalance results in high demand for female partners and wives. And this has in turn driven up the cost of dowries to upwards of 45,000 US dollars. That is a tenfold increase on just a decade ago, putting marriage out of reach of a lot of people, particularly those in the poorer rural areas in South China. The result is a flourishing bride trafficking industry, as women and girls from neighboring countries like Cambodia or Vietnam are trafficked into China to marry Chinese men. There's another reason that fuels this illicit trade, and it is that the cost of paying the brokers who facilitate this trade in brides is about 20,000 US dollars, which is much lower than the average dowry for Chinese women. Now, the women and girls themselves are often tricked by traffickers who trap them, forcing them to marry men they have never met or can even communicate with. Often, the traffickers work across different countries and threaten the women and girls with violence and restrict their movements. In the worst cases, the traffickers force the women and girls to marry multiple times and bear children in each marriage. In this episode of The Index from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime, we will be looking at bride trafficking to China and ask questions like, will the end of China's one-child policy make a difference to this terrible phenomenon? Can governments from the countries where the brides come from do anything to stop this? How can we best support the women and girls who have endured being trafficked and forced into marriage? I'm your host, Dan Lai Wen. We have three experts for this episode, Virak Chun, an independent consultant and researcher on human trafficking, Siang Suk Pai, Executive Director of Child Helpline Cambodia. But first, Ti Huan, an analyst at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime and Managing Editor of Journal of Illicit Economies and Development. I began by asking T about whether there has been an improvement in the situation now that the one-child policy has been removed. The changes in China's one-child policy have not yet improved the situation. So the trafficking of women and girls from, from the region for marriage in China dates back to the 1980s, but it only kicked off a significant increase since the early 2000s, because this was around the time when the first male generation of this one-child policy came of age. So when they reached the marriageable age, about 21 years of age, 
And then in 2015, as you mentioned, this one-chair policy was eliminated. However, this was still very recent, so we would still need another one or two decades, actually, to observe the changes regarding China's population and its sex distribution. Also, second, despite this elimination of the one-chair policy, Many young Chinese people nowadays are not willing to have more than two children, for example, because of the high cost of raising a child, especially in urban areas and big cities. So this has been coupled with the still very um, largely patriarchal society and culture. Therefore, their subsequent preference towards having sons instead of doctors is still prevails. And this will then still lead to a big imbalance between men and women in China in the future. Furthermore, I think we are observing a global economic downturn due to the three years of coronavirus pandemic, as well as just earlier this year, the Russia's war of aggression against Ukraine. This has significantly decreased the financial security of many vulnerable groups from the neighboring countries, especially those in the rural areas or ethnic minority groups. So also these groups, they don't receive social welfare benefits or state support often because they are marginalized or either geographically, ethnically, socially or economically. So they are increasingly susceptible to using negative coping mechanisms or behavior activities for survival, such as forcing their daughters into marriage or engaging in risky behavior like migrating for working in highly exploitative sectors or questionable jobs like in construction work, for example, or agriculture. So these are usually with a false promise of high pay. So to sum it up, the end of China's one-child policy have not improved the situation and I don't foresee that it will do so anytime soon. Yeah, that's a very somber analysis. I do want to bring Virak in soon, but T, one last point before uh, we move on. You've explained about, obviously, the background, the underlying reasons why the situation is as it is and why it's not going to change anytime soon. But could you take us through exactly how this works, particularly bride trafficking from other countries? And where do the brides actually come from? So if you could just, yeah, take us through how how exactly does it work? You talked about how people are trafficked or brought in with promises of jobs. But if you could just take us through the process process, it would be great. So usually traffickers use a range of strategies to recruit Southeast Asian women and girls to travel to China, mainly through false promises. One of the common approaches that has been leveraged by traffickers is to promise the woman a job in China with a significant salary. For example, in Cambodia, that would be typically of 500 to 3,000 US dollars per month, which is much higher than the average monthly salary in Cambodia. And some women would just be told that they need a marriage certificate in order to access the labor market or to access well-paid work in China, which is totally incorrect because the marriage to a Chinese man does not automatically open up employment opportunities for foreigners. It only offers a potential pathway to employment only after five years of marriage. So 
targeting those in need of a better paid job. These traffickers sometimes were even seen waiting outside and offering female workers higher paid jobs abroad at several factories, for example, in Nong Penh or in Mekong Delta River in Vietnam. The traffickers also use social media platforms like WeChat or Facebook to advertise fraudulent job opportunities to these women and girls. The other strategies that the traffickers would use include promises of a good marriage and a better life in China, where they would then promise the families of the brides to be dowry price, which is about $1,000 to $3,000. US dollars, for example, in Cambodia. The women and girls sometimes also are unfortunately tricked and sold by their family members, relatives and acquaintances just for a lump sum payment. And the payment would be either met at the point of the recruitment or at the point of the marriage. So I like to emphasize that violence and threat were often used to force the women and girls to marry their prospective husbands. So usually the women, for example, from Cambodia and Vietnam, they would then travel to China on a tourist visa, which only enable one month of stay. And then the marriages are often arranged or forced within this one month period. Because the traffickers have then already covered the cost of procuring documents, accommodation and travel to China up front. So if the women and girls refuse to marry, they will then be demanded repayment of all of these logistic costs as well as threatened to be reported to the authorities regarding their illegal or imminently illegal immigration status. Some were also reported to have been threatened to be sold into protests if they refused to marry and pay back the debts. Unfortunately, once you know, agreeing to marry, the women's movement is then typically restricted. They are often prohibited to leave the house and accompanied. They are also prohibited from having mobile phones or using them to make contact with friends and relatives back in their home countries like in Cambodia or Vietnam. And some NGOs that we interview also noted that the women and girls can then fight themselves in repeated cycles of forced marriage, taken away from their first husbands and children, and then be forced to marry another different man, often by the very same traffickers who were involved in their original arrangements. I mean, that just sounds pretty horrific to you, but thank you for making us, you know, sort of understand and describing quite vividly what are some of the, you know, really, really difficult uh, situations uh, that trafficked women and girls find themselves in. Let's talk about Cambodia, which is one of the countries that he, you, you said is, you know, where the, the traffic brides come from. Now, according to the OC Index, Cambodia is an origin, transit and destination country for human trafficking. And of course, their women and girls have been trafficked to China as brides, just as uh, T said. Virak, you and T have actually written a report on this, right? Can you tell us a bit more about the situation in Cambodia and, and, and how this happens? Cambodia is the original uh, transit and the destination country for human trafficking in many forms. But when we're talking about the bride trafficking, which is Cambodia is the original, original place, which is many, many of the uh, like thousands of Cambodian 
women and girls uh, traveled to China for, for marriage. And Cambodian women and girls who are smuggler or trafficker to China for marriage are typically of the vulnerable social economic. Like T already mentioned that from the ethnic minority or from the poor status, which is from the very rural areas. And moreover, so social economic impact from the COVID-19 in Cambodia also impact or push the, the number of women and girls travel to China for marriage. And historically, most of women smuggler and traffic to China for marriage were in their late teens or 20s. However, a number of CSO, a number of civil society organizations in Cambodia noted that the increasing prevalence of minors are also included, like including girls as young as 11 years old. You see, 11 years old, very young. Most of the Cambodian women and girls were smuggled or trafficked of Cambodia to China for marriage. So one in, in, in Vietnam, some broker obtained Chinese a travel visa, not marriage visa, actually, not working visa, but travel visa, like tourist visas for Cambodian women who then enter China for marriage. Thanks, Virag. Could you perhaps also, you know, talk about how this trafficking is linked to organized crime and criminal networks in Cambodia. You've talked about, you know, where the women and girls come from. You talked about the demographics, but it would be also interesting to understand the linkages with organized crime. In every stage, they already have rang. They already organized. Like T already mentioned that the trafficker and the broker have using these strategies, very organized ones. While networking appear to be relatively small, like they have the small group, they are highly organized from brokering folk, like documentations to organizing and communicating between not of the network across the regions, including the original, including the transit, or also in, including the destination country, China also. So tes- testimonies appointed to some transporter moving a group of up to 10 women and girls. Women, they are using the strategies to mobilize, to recruit the, the women and girls to stay in the one place for a specific period of time. And then on the day they are moving, so they're moving as a group, not individual, not once. So somehow they are bringing only one or two, but because of they have very skilled, very organizing one, so they're moving the women's and, and girl in the group of like 10 women and girl at the time. So the, every single stage, there's a group of organizations that they have very, very high technology. But most of the time, the victim, the women and, and girl, know only the very small, higher ranking, like only the, the very first broker or second broker only. So they don't ever see the big one or the big boss or something like this. So this is why the uh, bride trafficking or bride married in China, forced married in China, linked to the organogram. Thanks, Virag. Uh, T, China has built a fence, right, along its southern border with Vietnam and Myanmar. And I guess I should also disclose that, you know, Myanmar is where I come from. And I have written quite a lot of stories on on, on brides that have been trafficked from northern Myanmar uh, to China. So I, I, I know that this is a, a big, big problem. Do you think this fence that they've built, would that deter bright trafficking from these countries, T? Or do you think people will find other ways of crossing the border? It's like 
the game whack-a-mole, right? It's very unfortunate that if you close one way or one route, the traffickers will definitely find all the routes to meet the demand. So yes, as you mentioned, it is very sad that in 2017, China began the construction of these tall fans equipped with video cameras, lights and movement detectors along the Chinese southern border with Vietnam and Myanmar, which very surprisingly has received little to no regional or international media coverage, as opposed to, you know, Trump's <laughs> um, sort of promise of building the war and border with Mexico, for example. And here, China didn't say anything, they just did it. So this construction, as you mentioned, was accelerated since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic in March 2020 under the disguise of a COVID-19 containment measure. So now I think it is almost completed along the border with Vietnam. And why the full impact of the fence remains unclear to us, we think that it will most likely disrupt overland routes and could then drive a return to, you know, the use of official border crossings or back to the renewed use of air routes. So either trend would still heighten the need for travel documents, be it forged documents or tourist visa. So I imagine that it would not deter bright trafficking at all from the neighboring countries, but just use like enable a different sort of journey, migration and transport mode. Has the pandemic also affected bright trafficking in, in any way, shape or form? Yes, we believe so, that it drives it up. So the pandemic has led to lots of social and economic crises globally and also in the region specifically. And these crises have in turn significantly driven the supply side of the bride trafficking up, leaving a lot of women and girls being increasingly vulnerable to forced marriages. So my colleagues at Blue Dragon Foundation, Children's Foundation, shared with me that due to the COVID lockdown measures, including the closure of schools, many girls were then forced to marry early in Vietnam. This was due to the fact that school meals in these remote, isolated and rural regions were often subsidized by the Vietnamese government. So when the schools were closed, their families in these rural and mountainous regions suddenly faced increased financial burden, having one more mouth to feed in the family and coupled with a lot of parents facing unemployment or reduced income due to the pandemic lockdown measures, they then resorted to marrying their daughters away at a very young age. The same phenomenon also happened in Cambodia. For example, I think Zhou Bun Eng, the Secretary of State of the Cambodian Ministry of Interior, reported back in December 2020 that the COVID-19 pandemic and the closure of the border had also led to an increase in women being smuggled and trafficked out of Cambodia for marriage abroad, so most prominently in China. And the civil society organizations that we interviewed for the research also identified an increase in bride trafficking from Cambodia to China since the start of the pandemic. Yeah, that's actually really quite worrying how 
despite the sort of border closures and the restrictions that we hear a lot about that would have normally conventionally would have thought uh, would have stemmed the flow of trafficking it actually just like you said you know aggravated vulnerabilities that actually made this worse Fai, I want to bring you in here and thank you so much for listening very patiently um, until now you're the executive director of Child Helpline Cambodia, right? And you helped to create this NGO. At what point did you decide that this support was actually needed? You know, the support for trafficked women and girls was needed. Yeah, I have uh, worked with Child Helpline Cambodia since April 2010. Actually, uh, before that, I was working with the Asia Foundation, which is uh, an organization running to support a project on anti-trafficking. I feel like Cambodia at the time has no uh, helpline that can uh, use, you know, for uh, supporting uh, many social work, like allowing children, allowing women and girls to uh, access uh, helpline services. Uh, So then I decided to move on uh, to work for the helpline. Could you talk about how many children and youth has Child Help Like Cambodia helped so far? Uh, usually, uh, the helpline support all uh, in incoming call from uh, children and young people. Uh, so per year, we answer over fifty thousand call per year. Uh, because the helpline is quite general, uh, we allow uh, children and young people who uh, you know can always call in to access helpline services. This is why the number of call in, the number of text message in is a bit uh, large and that means we are not just providing services to only one type of uh, a victim or survivor. All type of problem can call in and we provide support. Are you able to then sort of share the type of phone calls that Helpline receives? What are some of the, you know, the different types of, of uh, uh, support that they're asking for? Yeah, there are many type of calls. Some are calling to access information services about plan of safe migration. Uh, some are calling to access for mental health support. Some are calling to access counseling support or reporting uh, the incident of uh, protection, child protection, or abuse or violence, and including trafficking. Yeah, we also have uh, received a call from a foreigner especially the journalists who witnessed uh, the uh, trafficking in online gambling in uh, Sinoville. But somehow we could only uh, refer this to the Ministry of Interior for uh, taking action. Right. So, you know, your organization is essentially helping to build resilience in Cambodia, right? And resilience is a key component that the Organized Crime Index, the Global Organized Crime Index measures. But as a country, Cambodia actually still ranks quite low when it comes to resilience. Can you give some suggestions on what can be done to improve the situation in Cambodia? Yeah, so why the resilience score is a bit low? I think it's uh, it's uh, depending on the uh, willingness or the political will of the leader and the partner country like the leader from China or the leader from uh, the Asian country. So in order to improve the resilience, uh, civil society alone, you know, cannot resolve it. It needs the collaboration with all stakeholders, including the government and the top leader. 
as well as the uh, partner country like China. They have to talk to the uh, Cambodian leader and uh, work with Interpol to arrest any organized crime network or organized criminal who uh, migrated from other countries like China to hide in some places in Cambodia. And we also have to uh, you know, work together among the Interpol, International Police and the Cambodian Police uh, to crack down the smuggling uh, network. You know, in uh, Cambodia, a lot of foreigners can come into uh, Cambodia to work in a casino or gambling online uh, without any passport. Yeah, so how can this happen? I think because of uh, the smuggling network that exists in the country. Thank you. T, what needs to be done to really, really, you know, clamp down on this practice? You know, where are the gaps in terms of both prevention and victim support that can really make a difference? We would have like three concrete recommendations. The first one is to raise awareness in targeted provinces where this practice is prevalent. For example, in Cambodia, that is Kampong Cham, or in Vietnam, this is the communities along the Mekong River Delta. So these awareness raising activities then should focus on making sure that the women and girls, they are aware that, you know, such promises of high salaries for unskilled jobs in China, like harvesting, domestic work or work in factories, they indicate a risk of, you know, false promises and human trafficking risks. And the second um, recommendation is that we would need to strengthen the criminal justice process for these human trafficking cases. We should help the survivors, with, you know, finance uh, financially with their participation in court proceedings because usually they would need to take one or two days of work for both commuting and also, you know, to attend these court cases or proceedings. And we need to also shorten the judicial process to make it less tiring for for survivors to to participate in them. The third one is that we would need to build a very inclusive and, you know, sort of media culture where we need to strengthen the coverage of human trafficking practices or dynamics in in Southeast Asian regions, for example, by the Cambodian media outlets, because with a repressive press environment or, you know, that would then induce the lack of understanding of the trafficking phenomena or hampers effective courage of human trafficking and also creates a culture of silence, which is not very conducive to awareness raising among the general public or prevention and detection. Thank you. And I'll just give the floor to Virak. Thank you so much, T. In terms of prevention, it should be established a migrant resource center. There are some house awareness raising people are not in the how whenever the stakeholder or civil society organize or conducted the awareness raising or community outreach. So resource, a migrant resource center should be established in mostly in rural area. The other thing is about the uh, stakeholder coordination, because at the moment, stakeholder including the civil society and also the government is with, like not consistently, not coordinate. If stakeholder can coordinate to provide the like prevention method or something like this, on the victim support, it should be come up with the idea of the government coordinate or support or cooperate with the civil society organization, for example, like Chapdai or Child Headline, 
to provide the uh, comprehensive service, including the um, repatriation from China when the victim already identified. Also, they provide the uh, social service of well-being, like counseling, because the victim has affected not only the physical, but on, on also the mental. So well-being, counseling also provided, and also provided the uh, livelihood program, like uh, providing the material or the resources for the work or for the uh, business or, or something like this. And also the voice of the victim should be heard, should be heard by all the uh, relevant stakeholders. So somehow it should be conducted like the forum of the victim. So victim can give or can uh, provide the voice, meaning raise the voice to the to be heard by the government or policy maker. So it's time to move to uh, Mr. Pai. So my idea is that we have to uh, continue. I mean, the international uh, and regional uh, organization have to uh, continue to provide support uh, for the uh, uh, civil society in Cambodia, you know, to uh, run different uh, program or project, you know, to promote safe migration and counter uh, trafficking. Uh, secondly, I see that many victims of uh, human trafficking who are repatriated from China, from Malaysia, back to Cambodia, oftentimes they go back, yeah? They go back to Malaysia or they go back to China. So when I meet with some uh, survivor, female survivor, I ask them why. Then they say, because in Cambodia, they cannot find employment. They have nothing to do in Cambodia and they need some income to support themselves and to support their family. So they know that they will be trafficked if they uh, go back to China or if they go back to Malaysia. But the only way they, they do is they go back. They, they have to go back in order that they can earn some income. There is no mental health support. There is no counseling service, you know, for those kind of victims. This is tragic. You know, this is a tragedy. So the government has somehow they work, but still need more uh, support in terms of providing uh, mental health support in terms of providing uh, a livelihood program to the, the victim, to the survivor. This is where we leave it for this episode of The Index. A big thank you to T, Virak and Sokpai for joining us today. You'll find a link to T and Virak's paper, Cambodia's Traffic Brights, the escalating phenomenon of forced marriage in China in the podcast notes. There, you'll also find a link to the Global Organised Crime Index, which lists 193 countries around the world and scores their levels of criminality and resilience. Remember that this is a free resource and can be accessed by anyone. Just head over to ocindex.net. We'll be back next year with more episodes of The Index from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. I'm Thin Lai Nguyen. Thanks for listening.